Hello, friends. Welcome to June, and welcome to the continuation of our conversation on the life of David. We're calling this series David in Real Life, and we will say more about that in just a moment. But before we get to that, uh, a couple of sort of businessy items, um, but exciting things that I wanted to share with you guys. Uh, today. So first of all, this is the, the weekend in which we would normally uh, be celebrating grads and um, you know bringing students on stage and, and having the, an opportunity to uh, honor them and celebrate the work that they have done well at Davis, uh, UC Davis, and, and for moving on to the next thing. So uh, I would encourage you to go and check out um, the digital worship gathering from this week, we have a bunch of videos from our, our different grads. This year is a pretty incredible group. Um, I believe there's 12 total that we are sending out uh, this year. And uh, just a phenomenal uh, group of, uh, of young people. This is very critical to who we are as a church. Our, our, our mission, uh, part of our mission anyway, I believe, is is sending people out and it's a bittersweet moment because it's hard to say goodbye and there's always this sense I think at discovery of um I don't know maybe feeling like things are kind of temporary and and you get to walk with people for you know one year two years sometimes a little bit longer five to six years or whatever it is but at some point you kind of know in the back of your mind we we may be saying goodbye sooner than later so a couple of things that I want to say about that real fast. One is, um, as bittersweet as that is, as, as hard as it is to say goodbye to people, uh, it's so worth celebrating because, again, it comes back to who we are as a church. I think a big part of our mission is to walk with people during their time as students at UC Davis, help them discover more about the good news of Jesus and who they are, how they are created and equipped to share that good news with others, and then launch these folks out to go do great kingdom work um, in other places. And it's a way of building the church that's less about us at Discovery and more about the larger church, the bigger thing that God is doing, building his kingdom, not just in Davis, but throughout California, throughout the United States, and, and quite frankly, throughout the world. We have people going all over the world as they move on uh, from here. And that is that is cool. That, that means that our influence is so much bigger than uh, what happens in Davis. Obviously, we want to have an impact on this city. We want to serve the people in our county. And we want to meet needs here. We want people to uh, who live here to know and discover the good news of Jesus. But also part of our mission is building the larger global church. And that's actually really exciting. I, I think that's um, so much fun. And again, we have an outsized influence because of our sending capacity. Let me be a cheesy pastor here for just a moment. But for us at Discovery, success is not about seeding capacity. It's about sending capacity. Ooh, that'll preach, right? <laughs> um, anyway, uh, so while it is, again, I think, at times difficult to say goodbye to people. There's also this sense in which we are part of the larger mission of what God is doing in the world. And then there's also this truth that because of uh, who we are as children of God, there never is such thing as a true goodbye. We will all see each other 
again. Are you with me? Now, we send people out, but we also welcome people to our team. And so this is our, my second update is that James and Megan Collington. And again, if you've been watching our digital gatherings, you've you've uh, probably seen them um, and, and participated in worship with them at some point um, in the last couple of months. They uh, came out in January to, to interview and to sort of um, prospect, uh, uh, explore the prospects of being on our team. And after prayer and discernment have um, said yes to the invitation to come be our next director of creative arts. So James will be um, coming on staff with us full time starting October 1. That's the date that we're working towards right now. James is, is fantastic. He's He's got a pastor's heart, a shepherd's heart. He loves people really well and is great uh, at developing people. Um, he also is a, a fantastic musician and worship leader. And so we're, uh, we're excited about those gifts. I also believe that he's going to help lead us in mission as well. James has been um, leading worship for many years, but also been working on his own music and sharing that with the world. And um, again, does a great job of, of navigating the music scene and spaces outside of the church. And I think that will be a good gift and a good model for our community. Megan is, is also fantastic, just a real dynamic person. She um, speaks Spanish. She uh, has a deep, deep care for the least of these. She's working on her master's degree in social work. Um, she's a prayer warrior, um, has a prophetic voice, and again, will be a good gift uh, to our church. Together, just a wonderful couple that we are adding to our team. So this is an awesome thing. We, we're really uh, celebrating this. We're also trusting God in all of this. Um, so far, our giving has been strong since uh, the coronavirus hit and we've kind of moved into this new phase. And our prayer is that it will continue to be that way so that we can pay James when he gets here. Um, and so I just want to encourage you guys to be praying that God would continue to provide for our church so that we can meet these kinds of needs. I um, want to challenge you to keep giving uh, so that those needs are met. Um, and then I uh, just want to ask you to be praying for the Collingtons as they move through um you know, the process of, of doing their own goodbyes and, and wrapping things up with their current community um, in Providence, Rhode Island. And then, of course, all the logistics that go into moving across the country, that those things go smoothly. In particular, be praying for a, a home for them. Um, a lot of things have come together so far for them, but uh, it would be great for them to find a place to live here sooner than later. So, the Collingtons are coming. This is good news. Let's be praying for them as a community. Finally, one last thing. We raised uh, a bunch of money early in May, so about a month ago. And um, we want to do three things with that. One was uh, to just kind of create a fund for people in our own community who need help paying rent or who need help with groceries or who need uh, help paying for mental health services. And that's kind of the bulk of what we raised. We also were able to give two gifts of $1,000 each to Fourth and Hope in Woodland um, and to an organization called Empower YOLO, both uh, of those places doing great work with some of the most vulnerable people in our community, really in any time, but especially during this time. And then finally, we also gave out some uh, kind of mid-year morale-boosting gifts to our, our core missions partners. And just want to uh, share a quick story um, from one of those those gifts. Really fun to to do this uh, with our our missions partners. I think it's been great to 
continue building a relationship with them. We support David and Claudia Osa. They are uh, serving with an organization called Global Scope. By the way, Global Scope is just one of my favorite ministries in the entire world, doing phenomenal work with college students around the world. Um, just amazing stuff. And so we support David and Claudia. They are in Uruguay serving students there. The name of their ministry is La Ruta. And um, uh, they uh, sent us an email um, kind of telling a story and as a way of saying thank you. So let me read part of the email. This is actually from David. So David asked that um, if it would be okay for him to use our gift to help spoil Claudia for her birthday. So he writes, recently, Clow and I had been talking about how to be more conscious about the things that we buy. So I didn't want to just buy her a present for her birthday. I wanted to give her an experience so that she could uh, move through her birthday in a different way. I I wanted to give her food and and some fun stuff, again, experiences uh, to help her feel loved on her birthday. And she thought it was fantastic. I ended up telling her about your campaign and she couldn't believe it. She is So grateful for all of you. You know, it's kind of funny. Once I told her about your gift, she felt so much better because she was concerned about uh, what I was doing, ordering food for lunch and dinner. That's something that we don't normally do. Concerned about the money that was being spent on her. So you really helped her feel loved and cared for. Once again, thank you so much for doing this for all of us. It was an amazing thing. Love to you all. David Osa. Very cool. I just wanted to share that with you guys and say, well done, Discovery. Let me pray, and then we will jump into our conversation because this is a fun one. Okay, This is a good time. Heavenly Father, thank you for what you are doing here at Discovery. Thank you for the folks that we are sending out and for the opportunity to be a part of their story even for a short time. God, would you continue to use them to build your church, to serve your kingdom wherever they go next. May they always look back at their time at Discovery as a critical moment, a pivotal moment, a trajectory-altering moment where they uh, were able to either encounter or know or understand the good news of Jesus better and and who they are, how how they are uh, gifted and equipped to share that good news with others. Father, now uh, we also pray for the Collingtons, God, and for their transition. Would you bring them um, to us safely this fall? Would all the details come together? And thank you for our missions partners and what you are doing through them. Thank you that we were able to be in a small way an encouragement to them uh, during this time. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, today we are in 1 Samuel chapter 17. This is a story you may have heard of before. It's about some guy named David and some other guy named Goliath. So we might be familiar with this story. It's a story that's told in church a lot. It's a story that we love to tell our kids. And it's also a story that has had you know an impact outside of the church as well. You think about Malcolm Gladwell's book, um, which uses the David and Goliath, you know, story as a metaphor you think about sporting events and anytime there's an underdog and a uh you know team it seems like a powerhouse there's always this like oh david versus goliath thing it's captured our imagination in all kinds of ways and so there's a sense of familiarity with this story that can be both a help and a hindrance in talking about it so i want to 
walk through it and maybe even some of the more obscure details just so that we we remember what we're talking about and that we're all on the same page. So 1 Samuel chapter 17, as the story opens, Israel is in this continued fight with the Philistines. Okay, this is verses 1 through 3. And of course, we've seen the Philistines before, right? They are the, the big bad guys of this part of the Old Testament, kind of the, the, the big bad guys in between Egypt and then later Babylon. Now, the nature of the fight has changed because the Philistines have centered a warrior named Goliath. Goliath is a big, scary dude. By the way, a lot of debate about how tall he really was. Our, most of our English translations, especially the NIV, which we use here at Discovery, will say that he was nine foot nine. The Hebrew, though, is ambiguous. He, he could be anywhere around six, seven, eight, nine, or even over 10 feet tall. Either way, he was big, he was strong, he was ferocious, and this is the most important point. He scared the entire army of Israel. If you look at verses four through seven, not one guy wanted to fight him. So again, the battle has changed. Goliath has set some terms. Looking at verse 8 through 11, he says, let's have a one-on-one match. I'll fight whoever your best fighter is. And whoever wins this, um, you know, the loser will become the servants of the winner. Again, the Israelites, completely terrified of this. And so they're at this sort of weird standstill. Goliath comes out every day, sets these terms. Israel doesn't rise up to meet the challenge. And they're just kind of all staring at each other across this valley. Now, last week, we were introduced to David, this this young man named David. David, the youngest of eight brothers, David, who is a shepherd, and David, who's been anointed the next king of Israel. Go back to chapter 16, look at verse 13 in particular. David, uh, anointed by Samuel, chosen by God to be the next king of Israel. Of Israel. Now, at this point in the story, David is taking trips from home to the front lines of the army. Three of his brothers are fighting, and so he kind of goes back and forth between tending the sheep and visiting his brothers. You can see this in verse 15 there of chapter 17. Now, on one particular trip, David gets to have this experience where he sees Goliath come out onto the battlefield, lay down the terms, and then in particular, he sees the fear of the army in response. If you look at verses 17 through 24, you'll see this. And then verse 25, David also hears that there's a great reward for defeating Goliath. Okay, there's some maybe personal interest in in this there because of that. Now, Eliab, David's oldest brother, you know, this is how siblings work, right? (laughs) Eliab, David's oldest brother, senses that David might be getting some ideas. And so he pulls him aside and says, don't even think about it. Like, you're not going to do this. Who are you to think that you can fight this giant Goliath? But David, nonetheless, gets an audience with Saul, who is the current king of Israel. Let's not forget about Saul. If you look at verse 32, David volunteers to take on Goliath. Now, Saul is skeptical, as you might expect. Who's this little, you know, scrawny teenager thinking he can fight Goliath? And so David presents him his resume. Look, I, I'm a shepherd. I've fought lions and tigers and bears. Oh, my. And, uh, and I've survived it. I know how to handle myself. If you look at verses 33 through 37, David lays out 
his resume. And so Saul says, well, okay, maybe, but, you know, at least take my armor. And you really get the sense that Saul thinks, wow, this guy is just going to get it. But what other options does Saul have at this point? Now, hold on to that thought because next week we'll, we'll come back to that. Um, some of the options that Saul did have. But Saul gives David his armor. And there's this sort of humorous moment where David tries it on. But it's too big and it's awkward. He's not feeling it. And, and so he chooses a different route. Now, let's slow down here for a little bit and get into the text itself. Look at verse 40. David takes his staff, his shepherd's staff, in his hand, and he goes down to the stream, and he chooses five smooth stones. This is all he needs. He puts them in a pouch of his shepherd's bag, and he takes his slingshot in his hand, and he walks out onto the battlefield and approaches the Philistine giant, Goliath. And Goliath is not impressed. <laughs> the next couple of verses, he, he's actually quite offended. You know, what, am I a dog that you come out? You know, like what, what in the world are you doing sending out this little boy? David, though, not doesn't back down one inch. Look at verse 45. David says to Goliath, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied this day. The Lord will deliver you into my hands. I will strike you down. I will cut off your head this very day. I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. Some fantastic Old Testament smack talk. David runs at Goliath, hits him between the eyes with his first shot, and Goliath falls down dead. David triumphs over Goliath, cuts his head off just like he said he would, and the Philistines turn and run. By the end of verse 53, everything is kind of turned into a rout for Israel. And then the story ends with David being reintroduced to Saul, and there's some interesting you know, stuff here about like, David's already met Saul and he's been playing his heart for him. And so how come Saul doesn't know who this is? And this kind of goes back to the, the writer's choice to introduce David in three ways. As a shepherd first, as an artist second, and as a warrior third. And that's so interesting, right? Because what the people wanted in a king is they wanted someone who would fight for them, which is what David does. And yet it's the last thing presented. Just kind of an interesting way of uh, telling David's story. Now the story ends again. David introduced to Saul. David reveals himself to Saul as the son of your servant, Jesse of Bethlehem. This is verse 58, the sort of bow on the end of this story. This is a callback to where we were last week. If you go back to part one of this conversation, this is the surprising, unlikely emergence of David son of Jesse, right? 
great-grandson of Ruth and Boaz, from this backwoods town of Bethlehem, the surprising, unlikely emergence of David as Israel's next king. Now, we love this story because it is both beautifully simple, right? Boy beats a giant, and yet it has so much depth to it. Now, remember, our frame for this conversation, David in real life. I want to draw out three ways in which we see David's analog faith, his earthy spirituality at play. Three ways that his faith gives shape and form and texture to his real lived life. For David, his faith is not some esoteric philosophical thing or or doctrinal statement that he's filed away in a cabinet deep in his closet. No, this is his real lived life. First thing is this. For a young man, David is very comfortable with who he is. David is humble in the truest sense of the word. He has a right understanding of who he is and of who he is in relationship to God. We might say it this way. David is an authentic human being. And we see this most clearly as David presents his resume to Saul, right? I'm a shepherd. I've fought wild animals. I've done all these things, even though I'm young. And and Saul responds by kind of dismissing that resume and instead offering his armor to David. I think it would have been very easy for David to say, you know what? This armor is a good idea. I need this. There's a giant over there. He's got his own armor and sword. Let us not forget the Philistines were known for their ironwork, for being very advanced technologically when it came to metal work. There's a giant over there. He's big. He's scary. He's got a big sword. I have nothing. And so even if it's awkward and unwieldy, I'm going to use Saul's armor. This is what you do when you fight a giant. (laughs) But David says, you know what? This isn't me. This isn't going to work. He rejects what seems like a good idea. I don't need this, he says. There's a lot for uh, us for us to explore here. Just a couple quick thoughts. Not only do we accept Saul's armor, uh, I think we actually go looking for it. We, we think, you know, if only I had these skills or if I had that experience, if only I were more like this person, then I'd be in, then I'd be good, then God could use me to do something. And we discount our own story, our own experience, the things that we bring to the table because we are trying to be like somebody else. But what does David do? He rejects Saul's armor and he leans on his experience as a shepherd. He leans on the skills he's acquired. I have this slingshot. I know how to use this rather than trying to be someone else. And just, you know, for me personally, I have found this story to be so helpful as a leader. You know, you go on Amazon or whatever your your kind of book thing is. There are a million books, models of what a pastor in the 21st century Western world is supposed to look like. And a lot of those models are built around, you know, the CEO the entrepreneur, the TED Talk speaker, the stand-up comedian, the YouTube personality, whatever it is, a lot of that, quite frankly, is just not me. 
my personality is actually kind of the opposite of what a lot of people would like. If you were creating a, a sort of modern ideal pastor in a lab, I, I would not pop out of that Petri dish <laughs> to use that imagery for a moment. And so for me, there's this constant temptation to put on Saul's armor. But just like David, when I, when I do that, when I try to be those other things, it feels clumsy and awkward. And so David is this gift, this reminder, be yourself. Even if it means going into battle with a slingshot, there are things that you have that you bring to the table. Skills that you have acquired, talents that are already there. God wants to use those things. Don't try to be someone Oh, second thing, David is the only person in this story, and there's a lot of people when you really think about it in this story. David is the only one operating with what we've been calling a story-formed imagination. He actually reminds me a lot of Jonathan. Remember Jonathan back in 1 Samuel chapter 14 has this great moment where he attacks the Philistines. It's just him and his armor bearer. And remember what he says there? He says, perhaps... Right? Nothing can stop the Lord from saving by the few. So let's just kind of go check it out. Perhaps God will use us to do this. Uh, 1 Samuel 14, 6, I believe, is where Jonathan says this. We see David take a very similar approach. You come against me, he says to Goliath, with sword and spear and javelin. I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty. A few verses later, David says, the battle belongs to the Lord. This is David's perhaps. I know we're going to win, so it might as well be me. These are the kinds of things that you do. Okay, you When your imagination has been formed by the story of salvation, exodus from slavery in Egypt, the stories of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the stories of your, your great-grandparents, Ruth and Boaz, when you have these stories internalized, you're suddenly free to take great risks because you know what God is doing. You know the bigger arc of the story is towards salvation and freedom and victory. And so you don't see Goliath as a big, scary giant, but rather as an opportunity for God to show up in a big way. David has a story-formed imagination. And then finally, what David does here is really give us a picture of the gospel. David prefigures Jesus in many ways. Today, he he has a stand-in for Israel, right? He goes and fights Goliath in the place of everybody else, just as Jesus is a stand-in for all of humanity. 2 Corinthians 5, For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. David did what no Israelite was willing to do. Jesus does what none of us is able to do. Are you with me? David does this in a surprising way. He does it with his slingshot and five smooth stones. Jesus accomplished his salvation work in a surprising way through the foolishness of the cross. Again, Jesus does what none of us could do. And then as Paul says, that compels us to love and to sacrifice for the good of others. David prefigures Jesus, gives us a picture of the gospel. Now, this brings us to our calling as a church family. I want us to think about David's story communally. 
I think there's this temptation in the David and Goliath story because it is a one-on-one matchup to then interpret it individually. How am I like David? What are my Goliaths? And there's some good questions to explore there for sure. But I want us to think about this story communally. How do we, as Discovery Christian Church in Davis, California, in the year 2020, live and act with David's faith? In our moment, in this pandemic, it can feel like our mission has been stalled or put on the shelf temporarily. It hasn't, friends. The mission is never canceled. Now, the way we talk about our mission here is we say that we exist to help people discover the good news of Jesus. And this can feel like an impossible task right now because how can we be with people? It can also feel like an impossible task even under the best circumstances because we face so many giants. Secularism, partisanship, humanism, racism, whatever those different isms might be, it can feel like there's so much that's up against us and at the risk of overdoing the metaphor. I think there's a a beautiful analogy here between us and David. We are equipped with five smooth stones and this truth that the battle is the Lord's. Or as Jesus says, In Matthew chapter 16, I will build my church and not even the gates of hell will overcome it. Like David, we already have everything we need. And so what I want to do here is explore our five smooth stones. I'm going to kind of co-opt this metaphor, this analogy to walk us through, you know, our vision and strategy really as, as a church. So our first, the, the first three stones are represented by our strategically simple structure, gatherings, groups, and generosity. These three things come straight out of Acts 2, the picture we get there of the first church. And I'm not going to go through in great depth, you know, how all of this works or, or what, what each of these things, you know, exist for. I just want to remind us of how these are stones that uh, we can use uh, in our mission. So if you want to know more about some of these things, there's information on our webpage, but certainly there's other talks that we've done over the last two years that unpack all of this. But to refresh our memories and really to refresh our holy imaginations as we go up against the giants of our world, our gatherings are are where our holy imaginations are forged. Now, certainly that can happen in other places, but the gathering is such a great moment for this through our celebration, our relationships, our storytelling, our singing, and especially through communion. We perform and participate in the story of the good news of Jesus. That holy story-formed imagination helps us to see God at work in personal ways, in real ways, And then also communally, we don't see giants. We see opportunities for God to move. Our groups are where we are formed through relationships and conversations, where we learn from each other, where we carry one another's burdens. Generosity encompasses all the ways that we serve and participate in building the kingdom of right relationships, right? Generosity for us, not just about giving money. That's a part of it, but it's so much bigger than that. The etymology of the word generous traces back to the idea of nobility. To be noble was to sacrifice on behalf of others. In other words, generosity is more about who you are than about what you do. 
Now, that being said, there is a lot that we do here. So to begin with, generosity is a posture that we live, and then that posture shows up in the things that we do. Do you follow? So whether that's serving kids or pouring coffee or using your skills to lead worship at a Sunday gathering, whether that's investing time and resources into people and causes, whether that's serving the least of these, pointing others towards God's shalom, whether that's blessing our city with the 4th of July family fun field, which we are really missing having this year, but has been so great in the past, whether that's investing in global missions, raising money to meet local needs, whether that's working with some of our local partners like Fourth and Hope, Davis Community Meals, Steak, the Food Bank. Uh, sometimes this is writing letters and sending care packages for John Green, our friend in prison. All of those things are great, right? But they are a response. They come out of this posture of generosity, sacrificing for the good of others. Now, the next phase for us here is to normalize this, to normalize this generous posture. We're uh, feeling like we need to put some energy to this and some leadership to this. And so we've launched a new team called the Street Team. And they'll be doing a number of different things, but two primary uh, things for this team are creating opportunities for us to serve, regular rhythmic opportunities that build sustainable relationships. And then second, offering what I would call immersive learning experiences so that we are generous in a way that helps people, okay, that doesn't hurt people, so that we're generous in a way that's not just about doing nice things so we feel good about ourselves, but in a way that leads towards and reflects God's shalom. So, gatherings, groups, generosity, the fourth stone is our practices. And we've, you know, spent the last five months with four different practices. I'm not going to dig into that right now. But just a reminder, Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Remain in me and you will bear much fruit. So, whether we're talking about gatherings, groups, or generosity, those things come from and are sustained by these practices. They are a means through which we remain, we abide in Jesus. And all of them are important. Um, But I'm just going to keep banging on the drum of prayer. Okay, Everything we do must come from this place of contending in prayer. Now, this might be reading too much into the story, but David doesn't collect five stones from the stream without kneeling down. And I imagine him kneeling down, He's in this very vulnerable position by the riverbank. This is not what you would do if you were a soldier. He's picking up stone after stone. And I wonder if as he's doing this, as he's kneeling there, he's having a conversation with God. Asking, God, is this the one? Is this the stone? Each stone a prayer. Now, last but not least, our final stone is what we call apprenticeship. Now, some people will call this leadership development. Others will call it discipleship. I believe that in the Venn diagram of those two things, there's a ton of overlap. Whatever you want to call it, our mission is people and our strategy is people. And it works relationally. People who invest in others, who invest in others, who invest in others. This is how the movement of God multiplies itself many times over. One generation commending your works to another. Psalm 145.4. Now, David, I don't think, was the smartest person on the battlefield that day. He 
certainly was not the uh, best equipped, but he knew himself and he knew his God and he had big faith. And he took action and because he did that, he saw God come through in a big way. Any other soldier could have had a similar experience. But I think far too often we end up like David's brothers. We end up like the rest of the army with, you know, the excuses of I don't have time. It's too scary. The giant is too big, whatever it might be. And we miss out. We miss out on participating in what God is doing. My dream, my urgent prayer for each And every one of you is that you would not miss out. My invitation, my friends, is to join me. Pick up these five stones with me. And then with great faith, let's go face some giants together. If we do this, we will have some stories to tell because we're going to see God come through in big ways. My friends, remember the battle is the Lord's grace and peace.